0: People have to be really clear in providing the direction to Canadian heritage as to how to implement this Indigenous Languages Act so that it does meet the needs of Indigenous language You know, to recover, to restore, to revitalize and to maintain the languages.
1: That's Dr. Lorna Wanostza Williams walking in peace. One of Canada's leading experts on the promotion and restoration of Indigenous culture and language. She's our guest today on the Akamemuk Podcast. Dance, wow, and welcome to the Akamemuk Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Bellegarde, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere. Or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders and community leaders. And today, the leading issue we're focusing on is First Nations languages. Our Indigenous languages represent who we are, expresses our wisdom, our worldview, the laws and the lives of our ancestors. But in Canada today, just one in five First Nations people are fluent in their language. This reality was born out of generations of colonial suppression of our language and cultures, most notably through the genocide of the residential school system. We want our languages to survive into the next century and beyond, and this involves some hard work. There is reason for hope. The numbers of First Nations people taking back their languages is increasing. And last year, Bill C-91, the Indigenous Languages Act was passed into law. It provides funding and a framework for many approaches to revive Indigenous languages. It builds on the hope from our elders who've worked so hard to preserve our languages for us. And perhaps few have worked harder than our next guest. For over 50 years, Dr. Lorna Williams of the Little Wat First Nation has been an Indigenous educator and language specialist. She's worked at all levels, from local to national and most recently as the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Education at the University of Victoria. And for her efforts, Dr. Williams received the Order of Canada last year. So, Dr. Williams, thank you for your work. Welcome and to to our Akamemak podcast.
0: Thank you. Uh, it's a real honor for me to spend this time with you and to be able to talk about this really, really significant and important topic. Hmm. And I just want to thank you for, for bringing it to people's awareness. And it's because of leaders and the interest of leaders that really furthers the work that people are doing on the ground in the communities and across the
1: country. Thank you, Lorna. And so, cook for that. Now, right now in Canada, We've got over 634 First Nations communities, you know, some call them reservations or reserves or territories, but communities, and they're not nations unto themselves, but in terms of the languages, uh, some say we have over 60 different unique, but with all the dialects, it's closer to 90, so... What is your thought and what is the state of those indigenous languages right now in this country called Canada?
0: Before I talk about the state of the languages, I just want to I just wanna say mm-hmm. that it's up for debate as to the number and the number of languages mm-hmm. and, the, and the number of dialects. And the first thing I want to say is that you know, Canada, it's diverse in its uh, environment, its biodiversity and uh, when we say that our languages are born on the land that really points to the fact that when the land changes the language changes because it's naming that's where it was born and it's naming that land so the diversity of languages uh, across this country is a really significant thought and idea and we talk about the You know, the communities, the 630 community, First Nations communities. But when we talk about the Mm -hmm. languages and what's happened to our languages, it's really important for us to remember that there are probably more people who are no longer attached to their communities or attached to their communities in varying ways. Because over the years in my work as an educator, you know, I've come across people you know people who are now adults who were disconnected from their communities and they became disconnected from mm-hmm. their communities through the residential schools many of them because they lost their status they lost their connection to their homes but there are probably more children who were removed from their families through child protection You know, children who were Uh, removed for fostering and for adoption. You know, and I've Mm -hmm. had people who I've met who've come, you know, who are in search of their communities from all over the world. You know, they weren't just, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. sent to the, you know, within the country to urban centers. They were sent everywhere. And so we have to remember that as part of the government policies that there was a very organized and planned system for the removal of our people from those very communities, so when we talk about mm-hmm. the first Nations population and even the metis and the the Inuit population, we have to remember that those policies and that anything that we design and plan has to include everybody mm-hmm. you know we can't only focus on the reserve communities, because there are more of our people who live away from those communities than live within them. So the state of the languages, of the First Nations languages across the country varies, and this is something that will need to be taken into account with this Bill C-91, with the Language Act, because Mm -hmm. the, the approach to supporting the languages will have to will have to take into consideration the the state of the language. There are Mm -hmm. some communities, and especially kind of in the northern part of the provinces, where there are still a significant number of people who speak the language. But even in those northern places where there has been lots of resource development, resource extraction, a lot of it has been on First Nations lands. And in those places, I can see that, you know, I was surprised at how few speakers there were left in those areas. When I first began my work in languages, you know, more than 50 years ago now, I remember what it felt like in my system when I heard about First Nations languages being extinct. And it just was so painful to me. That to, to know that that there were languages, there there were some of our languages that were no longer being spoken. There was nobody, but then, for example, one of those languages was Tunaha. They were saying that was extinct, mm-hmm. but I remember going to uh, going to that part of the world, and I was sitting in a hall, and this man sat in, across the table from me at supper time, and and he spoke his language. And I was asking him, I said, you know, they told me that your language is extinct. And here you are speaking your language. And he told me the story about going to residential school because we were sitting at supper. Across the street was the residential school. That, and he said, if you go to those steps, he told me, you'll see, he said, that they're well worn. And he said, they're well worn because I had to scrub them every time i spoke my language i was kicked out of there and told to scrub those steps he said they're very well worn so when he he said i left hmm. my community and many of them had had done this was a very common story there and he went to seattle and he was telling me that he worked in the shipping industry there as a longshoreman. and what he told me was he said every After supper, he said, I would go home to my hotel room. He said, I would sit on my bed facing the wall and I would speak my language. He said, I'd have a conversation with somebody. That's how he kept his language alive. And at the end of his life, he went back Hmm. home and he was teaching his language to the next generation. And he was documenting. His was not, you know, an unusual story. There were many stories like that. So the state of our Mm -hmm. languages really varies across the country. You know, from Mm -hmm. people like the Tunaha who have had to uh, regain their stories. But I also want to say that when First Peoples developed First Voices, their archiving tool, Tunaha had the greatest amount of entries into that documentation system. That's how hard those people have been working. And you see these stories Mm. across, across this country. There has been no support for languages or very, very little. And yet people have been working. You know, just this past week, I got the news that one of our, you know, greatest language warriors, Ruby Peter from the couch and passed passed on. And I'm telling you, Mm -hmm. I met Ruby 50 years ago, probably more than 50 years ago. You know, she was already starting to work on her language as I was on mine. And she worked tirelessly. And the people there benefit. Because of what this woman did, she didn't do it for money. She's the one who supported, you know, getting the language work done. Nobody supported her. Again, you know, it's a common story across this entire country. There are so many people. Our languages continue because of the dedication of people, you know, of people like her.
1: See, one of the things, Lorna, we always say that... uh... We, we always challenge in a very respectful way the myth mm-hmm. that Canada was founded on two founding nations, yeah. English and French. You know, we're speaking English now. <laughs> Beautiful languages, French and English. So I also speak... A uh, little Cree, right? And then uh, across Canada, whether it's 60 or over 90, there'll be a debate with all the dialects but there are different nations and different languages from Mohawk to Mi'kmaq to Algonquin to Maliseet to Cree to Ojibwe, Blackfoot to Nishka to Gwich'in to Dene to Naha, Northern Toshoni, mm-hmm. Southern Tishoni, Kau- mm-hmm. like there's, over, there's so many. And, and so that's all we always say. And your point about our languages are born on the land. And, and so how we, we, I always say our language and our elders say um, it's linked our language is linked to the land land to culture, ceremony, tradition. And uh, we need our languages to, to preserve who we are and where we come from. And uh, so it's very important. It's even linked to the right to self-determination that they point out, like our own languages, our own lands, our own laws, our own people, and our own identifiable forms of government always linked to language. And so, so again, over... Yeah let's just say 60 plus. Well, I'll just use that, just 60 plus right across Canada. And they're all at different levels. And uh, you mentioned you have to take into consideration the state of the language. And uh, what do you mean by that? Like like some are, are are okay. Like studies have said some, oh, Cree might survive, Ojibwe or Anishinaabemuin might survive, and, and Inuktitut, you know. But what about all the other Sixty plus, you know, and so it, it. I guess, would you say, like, depending on what state of the language it is, you have to have a different strategy to promote, protect. Is that what you mean?
0: Uh, yes, it's like, for example, the languages where there's where there are very few speakers left. and you know, people need to really be paying attention to mm-hmm. uh, to the documentation of the language. So that the people have something to work with, okay. people need to be able to work in you know from so many different fronts, for example, with people who have very few speakers of the language, what are they going to do to teach the next generation of speakers and so there all the different strategies that have to be employed are unique to each of the languages so for example, just to give you an example, there was a A community of uh, there was you know in talking to some young people, they realized they started to tell the story about that in their in their ceremonies they no longer were using their language, English was creeping in, and uh, the words from another First Nations language were you know Mm. were being used, and um, so what these young people said was that they wanted to bring the langu- their language back into their ceremonies because usually that's where our languages continue, is our, uh, take place in our ceremonies. That was a surprise to me because I always saw our languages in the ceremonies. And here was this community telling me that their their language was no longer the mm. language of their ceremony. So the university, along with the community, developed uh, a program for people who are involved in community ceremonies to learn the language. So they began learning the language because it's a very specific language too that's used by speakers in the ceremonies. And when those young people learned and they began to employ their language in the ceremonies and in the community gatherings, something I saw something happen that is really, extremely important. And that was, it brought so much heart and so much happiness to the people to hear their language in those places mm. of gatherings, the ceremonies and their community meetings. It was young people and the older people who still spoke their language who made that in partnership, in partnership with outside institutions mm-hmm. that helped make that happen. The, so the work that we do, it has to bring us to the place where our languages exist again in a natural way in our communities, in our places of gathering. And so that's going to take shape mm-hmm. in different ways, you know, depending on the language, depending on,
1: on the people. Again, you mentioned uh, earlier on the importance of documentation. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's only a few speakers, you might have to document things, like document it, tape it. Um, There's talk sometimes if you have enough speakers, you might look at this thing called a master-apprentice model. Uh, And then if you have enough speakers as well, you might look at immersion in the schools, you know, and then even in the homes. So um, some speakers before and and, uh, educators have said, yes, depending on, how the state, and you you said this, the state of the language. Out of our 60 plus different languages, we need to know what state are they in? How many speakers do they have? How many are fluent? And then you apply a different strategy as per the state of that. That's my understanding. That's that's what you're saying, correct? Okay. Okay. So now, one of the tools that we have now, we're hoping that it has, because we know the residential schools, I, I say that was a genocide of our people. You know, they never allowed our people to speak the language. In fact, you you gave the example of how people were punished, and so that really hurt. And so now, to revitalize that back again and bring back our languages, one of the tools that we came up with and the government worked with us was developing this legislation called Bill C ninety one. You know, to bring back fluency amongst our languages. What are your uh, what could this mean? Because before the law, before C ninety one came in, there was a program. But it was just a program and it was never adequately funded and it was unilaterally cut back as well. So what are your thoughts about Bill C-91 now that there is legislation in place uh, to revitalize Indigenous languages across Canada?
0: Well, that legislation is an important one because what it does is it, it brings Indigenous languages into the conversation. It's, it says there, were, there are indigenous languages. Well, prior to that, we were categorized in the Canadian vernacular of, uh, of our identity as other. <clears throat> when you think about our language, that we couldn't use our names to register as a citizen. And in some cases that still exists. And so this, this act will begin to change those inequities and assaults to our, to our identity as the Indigenous peoples of this land. And because in Canada, French and English are uh, the official languages, no other language then can receive the kind of support that those two languages uh, receive to make sure that they continue to thrive. And that they are a part of the, you know, the governance system of this war, of this country. The mm-hmm. act is a is a good step towards that. What we do with it will determine its importance and strength.
1: So it's another tool that we can use. Yes, um, you know, it's a. Uh... Uh, we made it come like french and english and and canada is an official bilingual these are the two languages official languages and so there's a lot of resources to promote french yep. for example mm-hmm. and, and as well english mm-hmm. and uh, but we've made this point that our indigenous language our first nations languages should be viewed as jewels of canada and uh, as treasures national treasures because they're not spoken anywhere else in the world in the world, and, uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. and so this to again national treasures and at some point, we'll get to the po- that point where they are official languages too because developing C91, there was that dialogue and debate Well, our languages should be seen as official languages as well because we're the first languages of this land. And we get that, that important point, point. we support that. But making sure that there's legislation in place to make sure there's adequate resources, financial resources that can't be cut, yep. that was the goal. And then within that Languages Act, yep. they talk about the a languages, Indigenous languages commissioner, and three directors. You know, one for First Nations, one for Métis, one for Inuit. Those are all within the Act, and we're going to keep moving towards implementation there. You've worked at many, many institutions and places of work. You know, like uh, at the in the educational systems, the local educational systems, uh, even with institutions like the First Peoples Cultural Council in British Columbia, to our universities. You know. So it's almost like this multifaceted approach to language uh, revitalization. Do you see that as necessary? And if so, why? And how do we have to incorporate beyond just the education system?
0: Yes, I've worked in in many contexts and beginning with my own home community. My home community of Mount Curry was the second community in Canada to take over its school. In those years, you know, I was just beginning... And so in working with a school, I remember I was given the task of visiting families to talk about what they wanted for their children. So my question was, we have this chance now because we're now we're going to take control of our education system. What do you want for your children? And not all the parents. And this gave me a really good view of just what has happened to in our you know to us, what had happened to us that the majority of the parents want you know talked about language and the importance of language and the importance of the school supporting the continuation of our language. And so that gave us you know our uh, you know, our marching orders of what it is that we were supposed to do. It meant you know looking at at that time, you know how many speakers we had left. What materials did we have? You know, it meant developing a writing system, an orthography for our language. And, you know, there aren't too many people alive today who can say that they worked on the writing system for their language, you know, but many people in in the First Nations languages were doing just that. And so at the time, I remember one of our strategies was we asked our band council to hold community community meetings in our language because we had reverted to English. you know that really was a good learning experience for us. And I remember how people, it wasn't just the speaking of the language, but it was the way in which people conducted decision-making. It encouraged people to go back to the traditional system of making of gathering information and making decisions there's a very unique Mm. process of of doing that and that was when i noticed that our language was most spoken in our community during funerals in our ceremonies Mm. and those kinds of Mm -hmm. things and so we started to try to find ways to bring the language back to life in all different domains. So for example, we still did lots of fishing, you know, during the fishing season. And we brought young people to the fish camp and and we tried to make it a point that everybody used Litwet in at the fish camp. It was to to make the our language part of life again, because as you say, the residential schools and schools themselves have done that to our language and not just residential Mm -hmm. schools, but day schools and public schools. And in working with the language, then at the community level, you have to work at many different contexts. So schools, Mm -hmm. schools are really key and important. You know, the language immersion are really critical. You know, when we think about public schools uh, in British Columbia, for example, you know, there are 77,000 students. 69,000 of those students don't reside on reserve. They come from all across, Mm -hmm. you know, the province, across the country. Yeah. And they have no access to their language. None. Right now. And that, and so schools, you know, have a role and they can do something. And, you know, and then working with, um, the universities right now at a university, any university in Canada, North America, there is no place for first nations languages for indigenous languages. Yes you know we can do work with linguistics we can work with second language but there isn't a place for for indigenous language revitalization or for working with indigenous languages and so that has to change hmm. and so in the change mm-hmm. that the act will bring that's one of you know that's it's the change in institutions the habits of institution institutions and the policies within institutions and within the governance you know systems that govern those institutions that have to change and so we mm. have to work with those with our languages and you know in British Columbia you mentioned First Peoples Culture Council and I was the chair of that council for six years and have been involved with it and that organization has been extremely important in the development of our languages. Why? There are a number of things. One is that it's a crown agency. So it's funded by the Mm -hmm. provincial government. And that gives a strong message about the importance of our languages here in British Columbia, the indigenous languages. You know, at the beginning, it was set out that it was supposed to generate its own funding. That's how it started out, and I and I remember, you know, there were people in that organization trying to generate funds. You know, the nonprofit societies, the foundations, and the the groups that give money would not even think about supporting First Nations languages. They thought it was a lost cause. Hmm. They still do. And so that's the state. And so in order to be able to do the work, you have to have like a stable funding scheme. The other thing is that when First Peoples provides resources, funding resources, along with those funding resources comes um, human resources, the expertise to support the communities at where they're at. It's not somebody up up high, somebody away, saying this is what you need to do. It's the community in Mm -hmm. partnership with the organization that work together. And the other thing that First Peoples did was it created ways in which communities could protect their documentation because this is something that is a real concern. And that is that right now, Communities can lose control of their data, and there's nobody that's helping them to support them to protect their data.
1: So that's a whole other piece, protecting their documentation, their intellectual property, so it's not uh, taken control and over from universities or academic institutions. Well, now in with provinces. the media. You mentioned this. The, yeah, media as well. Yeah. You made multifaceted approaches to revitalization languages, working at the community, not only on reserve, but off-reserve. So the role of the provincial governments you talked about as well, being very vital to supporting language revitalization. Um, Provincial schools. We can deal with our on-reserve school systems under First Nations control of Indian education. They used to talk about that. But the provincial schools, because half of our students do, like a lot of large numbers live off-reserve in provincial schools. So how do they get access Mm -hmm. to language revitalization? Academia and universities. Where is there a place for indigenous language? So... This multifaceted approach has to go at all levels in order to really focus on this, and that's a strong message going forward. And governments listening, they got to respond, because even now, there is a language uh, symposium. Department of Canadian Heritage is having a language symposium starting January 25. What are your thoughts about that language symposium now? It's linked to C91, the Language Act, but... What are your thoughts and some hopes and ideas and thoughts how to make that language symposium successful for First Nations people across Canada or whoever will be attending it?
0: As I've been thinking about the Language Act and the role of Canadian heritage in supporting Indigenous languages, so the one thing that came to mind that I think really needs to be uh, made conscious is that when you look at what used to be called the Department of Indian Affairs, I know that they've split into two, and, you know, services, Indigenous services, um, Canada, but um, but the idea of that group in their role with First Nations communities, it has always to been to control, and their relationship with those communities is that the communities are their wards, you know, they're looking after mm-hmm. them, and um, yep. um, and so the way in which they've worked with the communities is um, is has been very patronizing. It's not been a very good relationship. And then when you go to Canadian mm-hmm. Heritage, and the Canadian Heritage supports, you know, French in other parts of Canada and um, to make sure that it continues and to support uh, the culture and the heritage of, of French Canada and English Canada, and also providing support to some of the offshore languages. In working with First Nations, Métis and Inuit languages, they have to think about it in a very different way you know, than the way, the usual way that they've supported and provided infrastructure. You know, Canada has so much to learn about how to separate itself from its colonization role. And it's hard to think about that, but that's what they're going to have to do. And so my message to mm-hmm. the symposium is that they have, people have to be really clear in being in providing the direction to Canadian heritage as to how to implement this Indigenous Languages Act so that it does meet the needs of Indigenous language, you know, to recover, to restore, to revitalize, and Hmm. to maintain the languages and to be able to provide the necessary support
1: to do all of that work. Okay, that's a good message. That's a strong message to the symposium attendees coming up. Now, Lorna, you've been involved in in revitalizing our languages for over 50 years, you know, and you've seen many changes. And and you yourself went to a residential school when you were a child and had had your language stripped away from you. Um, Maybe share some of that experience from the residential school, how did that make you, like your experiences there regarding your language? How did you maintain your language even though you went to residential school? And then some of the changes that you've experienced the last 50 years, like right from the residential school itself to where you are now. Can you just share some Mm -hmm. thoughts and experiences from that?
0: Well, when I went to residential school, I had been uh, to grade one in my home village. I remember, you know, I was monolingual in my language. But I knew that there were other languages because of my mother and my aunts and my father and uncle's role in kind of the greater community. And so I knew there was another language. And I remember going to school and my brothers were teaching me English. And so they taught me Mm -hmm. yes, no, and maybe. What was interesting was that they were showing me facial expressions. They, they were showing me what the teacher's face would look like. And if they said, and if she looked like this, then you say, yes. If she does this, then do you say, no. And if you, and if you can't tell, they said, say, maybe. So those were my first three words. And in the next year, I was sent to residential school. And at residential school, What they did was they separated people from the community and from the family to different residential schools. So I had an older sister who was at the school. There were people from my community, but we couldn't speak our language. And there were children from all different First Nations communities. And I just got so confused. Then then most of the teachers were French-speaking. You know, Mm. we were supposed to be learning English, but from (laughs) French-speaking... teachers who didn't who hardly spoke english themselves and so i remember after 3 years i went home and i was no longer able to communicate i just couldn't and um i was so confused and then when i when i was able to stay home i just was very confused i didn't i didn't have a language i could no longer you know like if i tried to speak in my language People laughed at me. Uh, like nobody understood what I was trying to say, and so it just my spirit was. I could. I know. I know what it feels like to have your spirit crushed, and just you know, like not understanding, not knowing. As a young child, and I remember, I used to go and to babysit for one of my brothers who lived down the street, down the the village, and. I'd walk by this elder woman, Weesh, and she was always babysitting her grandchildren. You know, And I was going to babysit. And mm-hmm. so I asked my mom to help me and I constructed a sentence that said, are you a babysitting again, Weesh? And so I would walk by her, by her and I would say this sentence. Then she would respond to me and she realized what I was doing. And so every day... She would expand on her sentence. And so I'd go home and I would ask my mom to help me to, you know, to say more, to ask her more and say more things to her. It's that way that I began to relearn my language. And I lived in, my, in the part of my mm. village where there were mostly people in their 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s. You know, many of them had never been to school and they figured out what i was doing and mm-hmm. so they supported me they helped me and so they're the ones who i think really along with my family um, helped me to regain my language well i bring that up because that has informed my work that that i really feel gave me an understanding about 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 language and the function And the role and the existence of language in a family, in a community, and in a world and what it describes. Mm. So that has always, you know, in all the work that I've done since, you know, like it's been with that memory, you know, that resonated with me and uh, informs the work that I do.
1: So Lorna, I always ask my guests, what gives you hope? You know, not only regarding languages, like we're li- right now we're in COVID-19, there's a big pandemic, you know, everything we've endured as First Nations people, colonization and oppression from the residential schools to the Indian Act. What can you say to our listeners to provide hope? What gives you hope as an individual, as an elder, as a teacher, as a role model for us?
0: I'm in a very privileged place that I'm connected to and in communication with people, not just in British Columbia, but across the country and around the world. You know, so I hear the stories that they tell me about the work they're doing with our languages, and I know that we're okay. You know, when I think about, I was at the university, you know, at a degree-granting ceremony. This was before COVID, and I was sitting there, and there was a young family, and they were speaking. Uh, you know, they were speaking their language, and it was the the young man was in a, was graduating from our from our master's degree in Indigenous language revitalization, and his story was there was no no more no mm-hmm. speakers of his language in his community no more. He decided that he was going to learn his language, and he set that up. He set about to do that. And when he married, he told his wife that she would have to learn the language and their children would hear that language first. And so here here he was now graduating Mm. with a master's degree and their entire family spoke their language. He brought that language back alive, you know, for his people. That gives me hope to be in the presence Mm. of young, energetic passionate, committed, young people. And we have many of those, you know, across the country. And, uh, you know, I got an email one day from a, a woman who heard me speaking uh, somewhere and uh, and she said, I listened to you and it was just, she said at a time when I was thinking, why am I working on our language? When nobody is interested, we can't, you know. I can't get any funding, and uh, so why am I doing this? Maybe I should do something else. She was th- said. She said, but when I listened to you speaking, she said, I realized why I was. I am doing what I was doing. She said. I picked myself up, and you know, mm. and I'm carrying on. And, you know, and she's been working on the language for many years. And there are many people like her in different parts of the vo- of Canada and different parts of the world, you know, who just continue in spite of all the odds. And, um, and so that's, you know, always gives mm-hmm. me hope because as humans, we're capable of that. We're able.
1: Lord, what a powerful message to end our podcast on about hope you know the energy of young people the commitment the passion the energy to revitalize languages no matter what state Mm -hmm. it is so I want to thank you so much thank you so much for being our guest on the Akamemik podcast today
0: and thanks again for inviting me and for being a part of this Okay,
1: and I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemik podcast If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, give us a rating, and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Bellegarde, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.